O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit, that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we are finishing up the first chapter of Romans today, which will probably be a great relief to most of you, um, because this is indeed a very sobering section of this epistle. Some would go so far as to say that the latter part of Romans chapter 1 is nothing short of dreadful. And there is a sense in which there is a great deal of dread here in this section. I think it's important, however, to understand what the Apostle Paul is trying to do here in Romans chapter 1. This, as I said when we begin our study, is his great letter. Uh, It is a letter that is filled with encouragement and hope, and many great people have come to faith through a reading of the epistle to the Romans. But before you get to the good news, you have to deal with the bad news. In order to appreciate how great a salvation is offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ, Paul wants us to understand how threatened we really are by our own sinfulness. I suppose it would be like somebody who's been diagnosed with a terrible disease, and there doesn't appear to be a cure. It appears to be something that is going to ultimately result in death. And then all of a sudden, you are told that there is a new drug on the market, and that you are able to receive it, and that it has a 98% cure record. You'd be absolutely delighted. Now, somebody who's never been diagnosed with the disease might think that's a nice thing, and that's wonderful, but it doesn't affect them in the same way that it affects you. And it's because of the dire circumstances that you can appreciate the wonderful good news that has been brought to you. Well, that's what Paul wants us to do before we can truly appreciate What God has done for us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, Paul needs us to understand just how bad things really are. So that's really the idea behind this first chapter in the beginning of the first part of chapter 2 of Romans. Paul is not just trying to be depressing or discouraging. Again, this is a message of good news. That's how Paul describes it. In the opening verses of this book, he describes it as glad tidings. But you can't appreciate it for what it is until you appreciate how threatened we really are. So let's go back, and we're going to go ahead and start at verse 18 just to put things in perspective. But we're going to concentrate today on verses 29 through the end of the chapter. And then if we have any time at the end, I don't make any promises about this because I don't want to discourage people. But... If there's any time at the end, we'll open the floor to any questions that we may have. So Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Some weeks ago when we started looking at this section, we talked about the fact that man, having suppressed the truth, what happens is that God gives them up. I said it's sort of like being on a pair of skis, downhill skis, if you've ever done downhill skiing before. The problem is not getting started. The problem is stopping. As a matter of fact, I heard a tragic story just this past week from somebody who's connected with the parish who was out with some friends, and he was skiing in Colorado, and uh, one of the young men was killed in a skiing accident. Uh, Apparently, he was going down a slope, and he could not stop, and he struck a tree. And when you're going about 60, 65 miles per hour, the chances are that that's going to be uh, very destructive, if not fatal, and it was fatal in his case. Well, that's sort of the situation that we have here in Romans. Paul says if you start on this downward spiral... You just pick up speed, and you keep going faster and faster. One commentator described this section that we're going to look at today, verses 29 and following, as lifting the lid on hell. Hence the image that you see on the screen today, rather graphic one. But that's the idea, that if you want to get a picture of what hell is like, just a glimpse of what it is like, Paul is describing it for us here. This lifting of the lid on hell. And it all starts with man suppressing the truth, and it then results in God handing them over. And we notice that God says that over and over again. God gave them up in verse 24, verse 26, and God gave them up. And then you turn to verse 28, and you have the same thing, and God gave them up. So God gives them up, gives them up, gives them up. There's this downward spiral until Paul brings us to the point here in verses 29 and following where he gives us a list of 21 dreadful vices. 21 vices that are characteristic of an age that has suppressed the truth, has been abandoned by God, as it were, and left to their own devices. This is what theologians would describe as the doctrine of total depravity. It's been said that there are five points to reform theology. I pointed them out to you before. You can remember them by the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Total depravity is the first one. 
unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Those are the five points of Reformed theology. But the first one is total depravity. Now, total depravity does not mean utter depravity. But it means that there is not an aspect of the human condition of our lives that has not in some way been tainted or affected by the consequences of sin. And that's what Paul is describing for us here. It raises the question, how low can you go? Once you start on this downward spiral, the question is, where is the bottom? There's an expression in Alcoholics Anonymous called hitting bottom. And they say that some people have a high bottom, some people have a low bottom. And the question is, how far do you have to go before you hit bottom? Because until you can hit bottom, you cannot begin to heal. That's what they'll tell you in AA and other organizations like that. You've got to hit bottom first before you recognize your need for help. Now, some people have a very high bottom. And they recognize that they've got a problem. Other people, it seems as though they never hit bottom. They just keep going down, 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 down until there's no hope at all. Some years ago, maybe I've told you this story before, I was um, getting ready for work, and I had the television on in the morning. I think it was the Today Show or something like that, just for background noise. And I heard them say, as I was getting ready shaving in the bathroom, we're going to have a special guest star today. It's Billy Joel. Now, I grew up as a teenager listening to Billy Joel, but Billy Joel sort of fell off the, the radar at some point. You didn't hear much about him anymore. I was very envious of Billy Joel. I mean, he had this ability to sing, and he was gifted, and, and then he was married to Christy Brinkley. I mean, what else do you want? And, but he sort of fell off the radar. And I knew that the marriage had broken up, and his career, which seemed so promising, apparently had tanked, um, but he was making a comeback. And so when they said, we're going to have Billy Joel, I came darting out of the bathroom to see what this was all about. And they interviewed Billy Joel, and they asked him about what was going on in his life, and he got involved in drugs and alcohol, as people in that kind of position often do. A great deal of pressure to succeed and do better than they've done before. And um, he really just self-destructed. And at one point, and he lost Christy Brinkley, which was the greatest tragedy of them all, but in the course of it, the interviewer asked him the question. They said, um, so how far down did you go? And I've never forgotten what he said. He said, I was so far down when I looked up, I still saw bottom. I was so far down, when I looked up, I still saw bottom. That's a description of what we have here in these 21 vices that Paul lists for us here at the end of Romans. And we need to understand them for the simple reason that this is the world in which you and I live and move and have our being. This is the air we breathe. And if we're going to appreciate, as I said, the great salvation that is being offered to us in Jesus Christ, we need to recognize we're a part of this. And if we're going to be effective witnesses for Christ in the world, we need to understand that this is where people are. So we're going to take a look at these 21 vices. John Gerstner was for many years a professor at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. 
Presbyterian Seminary. He was a brilliant man, Harvard graduate, um, PhD in theology. He was a great Christian apologist, but he had a wonderful way of illustrating things. And I'm going to come back to one of his illustrations at the end of the lecture. But he had a wonderful description of what's happening here in Romans chapter 1. And I just want to share the quote with you. Gerstner said, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now that, of course, is the summary of the law. Somebody once asked Jesus, What is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus said, This is the greatest of the commandments. We say it every Sunday. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So if you want to fulfill the law, this is what you do. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. You love your neighbor as yourself. If you think about it, there are three loves that are are necessary. You've got to love God first. You've got to love your neighbor second. And you've got to love yourself. Recognize the fact that you've been made in the image of God. But Gerstner goes on to say, man as a sinner hates God. He hates man and he hates himself. He would kill God if he could. He does kill his fellow man when he can, and he commits spiritual suicide every day of his life. Those are true words indeed. Well, let's take a look at these 21 vices. But before we do, we need to understand that they are part of two overall categories. So before we turn to verse 29, go back to verse 18, where we started today. And I want you to notice how Paul puts this. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul says there are two problems. One is ungodliness, and one is unrighteousness. Now, if you're reading out of the NIV, it may say wickedness. Anybody reading out of the New International Version of the Bible, does it say wickedness? That's probably the word that's used there. Actually, a better translation is unrighteousness. All right? And I'll explain that in a little while. But wickedness is fine. But unrighteousness is a more literal translation of the Greek. Ungodliness and unrighteousness or wickedness. Now, the reason why Paul gives us those two categories is because he is reminding that sin is always against two Classes of people. We sin against God primarily, but we sin against our neighbor secondarily. That's why the greatest commandment is to love your God and love your neighbor. We should never think for a moment that when we sin, it only affects God and it doesn't affect everybody else. It does. So this is one of the reasons why in church we have the confession of sin and then we have the passing of the peace And then we have Holy Communion, because until you have peace with God, you can't have peace with your neighbor. And if you don't have peace with your neighbor, you should not go to receive Holy Communion. So there's an order to the way we do things in church, and it's because of this. So when he says that we have suppressed the truth by our ungodliness, what he means is that many of our sins are against God, primarily. But when he talks about unrighteousness... He's not talking about righteousness in the sense of having a right relationship with God. He's saying that God is right, He is holy, He sets the standard, but we reject that standard. So it's unrighteousness, and those sins primarily are against our neighbor. So, 
in the verses that immediately follow verse 18, right on down to verse 28, what Paul is talking about is all those sins that we commit against God, our Creator. But then in verses 29 and following, he's talking about all our unrighteous acts, all of those things that we do to our neighbor who's been made in the image of God. Of course, all sin is ultimately a transgression against the law of God. But because the two greatest commandments are love God and love your neighbor, all sins fall into those categories in one way or another. So verses 18 through 28, Paul is talking about the sins that we commit against God, but now in verses 29 and following, he talks about all of the terrible things that human beings do to each other, which grieve the heart of God because we have been all made in the image of God. So let's just take a look at some of these. Buckle up as we lift the lid on hell. He said, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. There's that term again, unrighteousness. That which is contrary to the law and the character of God. They are filled with what? Well, with envy, evil, covetousness, covetousness. To covet means to what? It means to desire that which belongs to someone else. What's the last of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or thy neighbor's manservant. It's what we would call envy today. We don't talk a lot about coveting, but we talk about envy. Oh, I am envious. I sometimes say I'm pea green with envy. But you think about envy. I've sometimes described this as the Western or the American sin, because if you think about it, our whole system of commerce and so forth is built on the idea of I've got to have what the Smiths have. Or the Jones have. I want to keep up with the Joneses, don't I? We are envious of other people. We're envious of that person that has a nicer house or a nicer car than we have or better clothes or goes on a nicer vacation. We are envious and we desire. And that's how people who want to sell you something, whether it's a new suit of clothes or a new automobile or whatever it is, tell you, you need this. You absolutely need this. You're not going to be whole. You're not going to be sound. You're not going to be complete or satisfied until you have it. And so we are envious. If you think about it, it was this envy that resulted in the very first murder, wasn't it? Why did Cain kill Abel? He was envious of his brother's reputation. Reminds me of the story of the ancient philosopher and really, uh, I guess he was a scholar as much as a a statesman who lived in Athens. His name was Aristides. He was a great man. Uh, In fact, he was referred to as Aristides the Just. But if you lived in Athens in those days, it was always a precarious situation. Uh, People in those days blew with the wind, very much like we do. 
And, and you never knew what you were going to... You could be in fashion one week, and then you could be out of fashion the next week. Well, Aristides the Just was eventually brought for trial uh, by the city fathers. They weren't satisfied with something he was doing or whatever it might be. And Aristides knew he was coming up to trial, and there was the possibility of banishment from Athens. And the story goes that he was coming along the street one day, a few days before the trial, which he knew was impending, and he came upon a man, and they got into a, just a casual conversation. Aristides didn't even know the man, but the man came up to him and said, well, I hope you're going to vote against Aristides in the upcoming trial. Aristides didn't even know the man, but Aristides asked him the question. He said, why? Why should I vote against Aristides? What did he ever do to you? And the man said, I don't even know Aristides. I'm just tired of always hearing him called Aristides the just. Now, what is that? It's envy. It's, it's covetousness. And it's not always just for things. Sometimes, as with Cain and Abel, sometimes in the case of Aristides, you're just envious of somebody else's reputation, their popularity. And we become intensely jealous as a consequence. And Paul says, as a result of suppressing the two truth, they have become filled with all manner of covetousness. All manner of covetousness. Not surprising, he goes from covetousness to malice, envy, and what? Murder. Murder, if you think about it, is the natural consequence, isn't it? Now, some of us are not going to actually go through with it, but the way Jesus puts it to us in the Sermon on the Mount, being guilty of murder is just wishing you could get rid of that person. And you could, or you would if you could, if it wasn't for the conventions of society and the laws that are in place and so forth, but if you could, you would. Is there anybody in your life that if you could get rid of them, you would get rid of them if there were no consequences whatsoever? That's murder. And it follows quite naturally from envy. One of the things that you'll notice is that it is a downward spiral, but it is a logical spiral that Paul talks about here. He talks about strife next. They've been filled with all manner of envy, murder, strife. Uh, the Greek word that is translated strife here is an interesting word. It is the word that is sometimes translated as debate. Now, if you think about it, there's nothing necessarily wrong with debate. In fact, there are times when debate is a very good thing. It can actually flesh out the truth or the proper course of action. The idea of debate is that two sides will present their argument. That's what our court system, if you think, is based upon. When there's a trial and you have two sides and lawyers representing those two sides, there is a debate that takes place there. Sometimes in marriage there's a debate. When husbands and wives don't necessarily agree on something and they engage in a debate. So I don't want to give you the impression that there's anything wrong with debate, except that the word that is used here probably means not so much a debate as it does mean an argumentative nature. Do you ever know those kinds of people who just like to pick a fight? They, they, they're just argumentative. It doesn't matter what it is. They're going to, as we say, argue with the stop sign. 
Have you ever met somebody like that? How many of you have ever known an argumentative person in your life? Maybe you live with one. I don't know. But we all know what it is to have an argumentative nature. And that's what Paul is talking about here. We used to have a young boy in our neighborhood, and one lady described him in the neighborhood as, she said, you could just see him walking down the street by himself, looking for someone to fight with. That's an argumentative nature. And this is what Paul is describing. He's saying what happens is we suppress the truth, and this is what we become. We become a people who are envious, all manner of covetousness. We are a people who murder, if not in the flesh, at least in our minds and in our hearts. We are argumentative, always bickering back and forth. He says they become involved in deceit. Now, this is my translation of that word in Greek, trickery. Trickery. What does Paul mean here? Well, let me just put it to you in in practical terms. You're trying to sell your house. And you know you've got this big crack in the plaster in the bedroom. And you know somebody's going to ask about that. So what do you do? Right before you begin to show the house, you get back there, you get somebody to plaster over the crack, and you paint over it, and you never say a word. But you know that 30 days later, that crack is going to what? Reappear. And have you said anything about it? No. What have you done to the person who is the buyer? You have deceived them. And let's be honest, don't we engage in deceit? We engage in all levels of deceit. I was um, in a store recently, and I was um, looking at a picture frame, and I knocked it over, and it shattered all over the floor. And for a split second... I thought, what I'm going to do is just going to stick this back up on the shelf and walk away. But you'll be pleased to know I didn't do that. (laughs) I paid for it. It's still wrapped up, and I still don't know what I'm going to do with it now. But I paid for it. But it's that idea. There is that temptation, isn't there, to deceive. And our whole society is built on deception. There are some cultures in the world today that see deception, if it can help you get to the top, if it can help you to win, as a virtue, not a vice. And Paul says people are filled with every manner of deceit. He said they are also filled with maliciousness or malice. Malice. Malice is an interesting word. It is actually the combination of two words, one which means pernicious evil, and the other one, which means habitual. It is the word ethos. And an ethos is just that. It is a climate, isn't it? It's a way of doing things. So what Paul is talking about here is habitual evil. It's not something that's episodic. He's saying the culture becomes characterized by habitual evil. Habits are easy things to form. They are difficult things to break. We've learned that with COVID, haven't we? It is so easy to get out of the practice of going to church. 
Let's be honest. When you can sit at home with a mimosa and watch the rector on the screen. What could be better than that? And it's hard to break the bad habit, isn't it? Paul says what happens here is that when you start on this downward spiral, what you get involved with is a pernicious, habitual evil. And the longer you're in it, the harder it is to get out of it. He goes on to talk about gossips. Gossips. They are gossips and slanderers. It's interesting that Paul uses two different words there, gossips and slanderers. We think of them generally as the same thing, but actually one leads to the other. What is gossiping? Gossiping can simply be talking behind somebody else's back. And it's not always malicious. But you do it behind their back because you don't want them to hear what you're saying to their face. And you know how we put this. I'm only telling you this so that you can pray. Am I hitting the mark somewhere out there? I think so, probably. I'm only telling you this. Now, I really shouldn't be telling you this, but I know that you'll keep it to yourself. And that's how we operate. And I know that's all nervous laughter out there because that's what we're getting. What is interesting is that the Greek word for this, you'll see it up there on the screen uh, under gossips, is a word that sounds like what it describes. The word is phistoristis. You got it? It's, it's the idea. That's how the word came into being. It's one of those words that sounds like what it describes. We have words like that, don't we? Whack, boom, kiss. Those are words that sound like what they describe. That's what this is describing. I've always said that it is perfectly permissible for Christians to pray behind each other's back but not talk behind their back. But the problem is this. When you start talking behind their back, even about innocent subjects, it's not a big leap before you begin to slander them. You begin to slander them. And that's why Paul talks about gossips and slanderers in the same way that he talks about envy going to murder. Because one leads quite naturally to the other. It's that force of spiritual gravity that pulls you down from one to the next. And it is a form of murder, isn't it? Let's be honest. Slander If you've slandered somebody, if you've said something destructive about another person, if you have said something false or even exaggerated about another person because you're angry with them, you are guilty of murder. At least that's the way Jesus puts it. We would call it character assassination. Character assassination. And what Paul is saying is that the culture becomes characterized by these things. It's not that these are things that are just out there sort of floating in the ether. No, Paul says this becomes the character of the culture. It is a culture characterized by unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slandering. Then he throws this in, which is kind of curious, because we said that Paul in this latter part of the chapter is really talking about the sins that we commit against others, 
In the first part of the chapter, he's talking about the sins against God, but he throws in this phrase in this litany of the terrible things that we do to each other. He says, haters of God. Now, of course, all sin is characteristic of our hatred of God and our rebellion against him. Why does Paul put in haters of God here? I think he throws it here in the middle because all of these things characterize our hatred toward one another, and that means we hate God because we are all made in the image of God. We bear his mark. That's why a sin against your neighbor is such a grievous thing. You are sinning against a creature that is eternal. That's why it's not a a temporal thing. That's why killing a fellow human being is much worse than killing a dog. Now, I'm not suggesting you go out and kill dogs. But a dog is a temporal creature. A human being is an eternal creature. And so, if you hate your fellow man, you are, in the midst of all of this, a hater of God as well. The word that is translated here as insolent is a word you're familiar with. It's the Greek word hubris. Hubris. And what is hubris? Pride. Pride. You know, it's interesting to notice that even even the pagans understood that pride was the deadliest of the seven deadly sins. If you think about the stories from Greek mythology, those of you who are experts on this, you'll know that Every time one of the heroes was undone, it was often undone as a result of what? Hubris, pride. Even the pagans recognize the danger of pride, that it goes before the fall. And yet we are a proud people, aren't we? We take great pride in our heritage. We take great pride in our accomplishments. All of those things. And these are the things that Paul says characterize society. They are proud. When we talked about the subject of homosexuality last week, we even talked about the fact that the whole movement is known as pride. So hubris is a problem. And it is interesting that what falls from pride is what? Arrogance. And arrogant. Most people that are very proud of their accomplishments and willing to tell you about them are also arrogant people, aren't they? They somehow feel that the, the, the normal rules and laws and regulations just somehow don't apply to them. We would call it a sense of entitlement. A sense of entitlement. Have you ever known anybody that has a sense of entitlement? Boastful. Boastful. Boastful follows pride because we're puffed up, talk about ourselves. Inventors of evil. At this point, Paul, for the next two, can't use just one word in Greek to describe. He's got to use two words. Inventors of evil. That is to say, they are not satisfied with the traditional forms of evil. They're out there constantly inventing, creating new ways of doing those things that are contrary to the law of God and harmful to their neighbors. I mean, you think about what the Nazis did in the 1930s and the 1940s to the Jews. I'm not going to, because this is the lunch hour, describe some of the things that they do with Dr. Mengele and others like that. 
But it's amazing, they weren't satisfied simply with killing the Jews, exterminating the Jews. They invented new ways of doing it. Horrible, inhumane, ungodly things. And Paul says that is what society does. It creates ways of inventing evil. Now, some are not always as stark and as obvious as what the Nazis did, but let's be honest, people are always creating new ways of cheating somebody else. Always looking for some new way to be at the top of the heap. So inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. That's the fifth commandment. Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. Paul describes this as first commandment with a promise. What's the promise? that it may go well with you in the land. That's what Paul says. Honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you in the land. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you, all the days of your life, honored your mother and father? Now my mother's sitting right down here in the front, so I'm going to be very (laughs) hesitant to even, even claim that I have always honored my father and my mother. I mean, how many times have we talked back, even as a teenager? How many times when we're adults we say, now, don't tell me what to do. I've said it many times. I am 52 years old. Don't tell me what I'm supposed to do. (laughs) Honoring our father and our mother that it may go well with us in the land. Let's be honest. Most of us at one point or another have fallen short, haven't we? And it seems to be the characteristic of many young people today to throw off all authority and to disregard their parents all together. Disobedient to their parents. Paul then goes on to talk about being senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Um, All of these words in Greek begin with the prefix ah, alpha. And basically what it means is not. In other words, sensible means not sensible. That's why it's translated here as senseless. Faithful is not faithful. That's why it's translated as faithless. Heartfelt becomes not heartfelt or heartless. And ruthless means, well, basically without mercy. Now let's just talk about these for just a moment. Senseless. What does he mean here? Most of us, when we think of somebody who is senseless, we think of somebody who is incapacitated. You know, if somebody's knocked on their head senseless, they're not responsible for their own actions, right? That's not what Paul means here. What Paul means here is without a moral sense. We would say lacking a moral compass. That's what he means when he says senseless. There's no moral sense. There's no sense of what is right or wrong. I think that's the, that's the worst kind of person. It's, it's not a person who doesn't know what's right and refuses to do it. It's somebody who has no moral sense whatsoever. Everything is judged by whether or not it works for me and what's best for me. And we're living in a culture which is very much characterized by people like that. Faithless. This is an interesting word because you've heard me talk many times about the word faith 
The Greek word is pistis. Pistis. It means trust. The way I've described it is you have to have faith. Paul says you are saved by grace through what? Faith. And we said that the word pistis means to trust. That's what it means. It doesn't simply mean believing in God. It means believing on God in the same way that you believe on a parachute if you jump out of an airplane. It's one thing to be flying in the airplane and there's a parachute in the back and everything's going fine and you know that parachute is capable of saving you if there's a problem with the engine. But you never really have to test it. That's believing in something. But then when the engine sputters and the captain says, we've got to bail out, and you strap that thing on your back, it's no longer believing in. You've got to believe on it. Especially as you're hurtling toward the ground from 10,000 feet. That's believing on something. That's the Greek word for faith that is normally translated as faith. Pistis. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. He uses another word which means to break faith. That's why I've translated it up there, a covenant breaker. You've heard the expression of breaking faith with someone, have you? You make an agreement with somebody, you shake hands with them, and they go back on the agreement. Or you make a promise before God and a company of witnesses that you will be faithful to your spouse all the days of your life in times of prosperity and adversity until what? Death we do part. Did you know that marriage is a life sentence? Without the chance of parole sometimes. But there it is. You make a promise, don't you? You, you, you enter into a covenant. But when you break faith, you do what? You break the covenant. You break the relationship. And Paul says the culture has become characterized by covenant breakers, those who break faith. They're heartless. This literally means without natural affection. It's a mother who has no regard for her baby. She gives birth to it. There's no motherly instinct whatsoever. Only thing she sees is a child that is a nuisance to her. And if she could get rid of the child, she would. And many do. That's heartlessness. And let's be honest, there are people like that. It's not just with children, it's with older people as well. Oh, that person is a drain upon me. It's a burden. If she would just die, it would be a blessing. And they don't mean a blessing to her. They mean a blessing to themselves. We don't like to talk about that, but folks, we all know this is true. That's what's so powerful about what Paul is doing here in this first chapter of Romans. He is describing a world that you and I recognize. They are heartless. They are ruthless. They are without mercy. No gentleness, no kindness. So let me go back and read them all now, put together. And I want you to ask yourself, is this a description of the world, the culture in which you and I live? In little things, in your neighborhood, and on grand things, like what's happening right now in the Ukraine. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind 
to do what ought not to be done. They were filled, characterized, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. I asked the question at the beginning, how far down can we go before we hit bottom? How do we know when we've hit the bottom? Well, Paul tells us there at the very end. He says, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve death, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's when you know the culture has hit bottom. When all of a sudden, you're not even embarrassed by the sin anymore. You take pride in it. And you applaud those who practice these things. Keep your finger there in Romans for just a minute, and I want you to turn back to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 5. And what we have here in Isaiah chapter 5 is a series of woes, that is to say curses, pronounced on the wicked. This word, unrighteous. Same word Paul is using, it's the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek, but the same idea here, wickedness. And look at what the prophet says, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know when you've hit bottom, when people are calling good things evil, and they're calling evil things good. When you're saying that truth is a lie and a lie is the truth, that light is darkness and darkness is light, that's when you know you've hit bottom. Let me ask you a question. Is Is that what is happening in our culture today? Now, when you hit bottom, the question is, what happens? As in Alcoholics Anonymous, if you hit bottom, one or two things are going to happen. You're either going to see the error of your ways and seek help, or you're going to die. Those are the only two options that are open to an individual and to a society that has hit bottom. But that's where we are, you see, as a culture. Now, it's very easy at this point, and I said we were going to finish chapter 1, which we have. I want to just take you, though, first of all, to the beginning of chapter 2. 
Because it's very easy at this point to say, oh, yes, that's right, that's our culture. And I can give you a hundred examples of people who live like this without in any way seeing yourself as having contributed to this problem and as having been complicit. Paul, you know, Paul was trained as a Pharisee. He was trained as a lawyer, basically. Paul knows what people are thinking. Good lawyers can anticipate what the other side is going to say. And, and Paul can do that. He, he knows what people are there. There are some people that are reading this letter and thinking, well, that is terrible. Those terrible people, yes, they deserve the wrath of God, and I hope he gives it to them. Well, that's not us. But look at what Paul says, chapter 2. And remember, and I've said this many times before, there were no chapter divisions when Paul wrote this letter. So he ends with, they not only do these things, but give approval to those who practice them. And he goes right on, therefore, you. He didn't say they. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Look in the mirror, Paul says. Paul says no one is with excuse. Why? Because he says, first of all, no one ever sees him or himself or herself clearly. We always see the fault in somebody else's eye. Jesus talked about this on one occasion. He said, don't worry about the speck that's in somebody else's eye. Worry about the two-by-four that's in your own. But that's a hard thing for us to do, isn't it? How many of you find it a whole lot easier? I'll be the first one to admit it, so you don't have to feel bad if you raise your hand. But how many of you find it a whole lot easier to see faults in other people than you do in yourself? Of course you do. I'm reminded of the book. I don't know how many of you read it. It came out years ago. It's gone through I don't know how many iterations, but it was the book How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Anybody ever read the book? It's an insightful book. If you've never read it, you ought to go ahead and read it. It is insightful. But there's a story that Dale Carnegie tells in that book about how human beings really fail to see themselves as they really are. They, they, they have this sort of glossy picture of themselves, they can see all the faults, the flaws, the blemishes, the warts, and everything else and everybody else, but they just don't somehow see it in themselves. The example that he used was Al Capone. Now, you all know who Al Capone was. He was the big Chicago gangster back during the days of Prohibition in the 20s and the 30s. He was a terrible man. He was a ruthless man. Um, he was the man that orchestrated the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago. He was declared by the Federal Bureau of Investigation to be public enemy number one, Scarface. There he is. When he was finally arrested and thrown into prison, this is what he said. I have spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures helping them to have a good time, and all I get is abuse, the existence of a hunted man. See, that's how Al Capone saw himself. How do you see yourself? 
See, oftentimes we see ourselves as what? A victim. But what Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 1 is the human race. And we're part of that human race. We're not the victims here. We're the perpetrators of these terrible crimes. And that's why he says the wrath of God is being poured out upon a sinful humanity. And the question is, what hope is there for us if we've hit bottom? Well, that's what the rest of the epistle is all about, isn't it? But you can't appreciate the good news. You can't appreciate how great a salvation is offered to us in Jesus Christ until we realize how bad we really are. How many of you think yourself to be a bad person? Be honest. How many of you admit, acknowledge that you're a bad person? Well, how many of you at least think you're sinners? All right. I got news for you. You're worse than you think. That's what Paul is saying here. As bad as you think you are, you're worse than that. You're welcome. But, but, there's always a but. But God. And that's what we're going to take a look at as we head into the second chapter. But God. All right, questions. I've got about three minutes, and I'll give you questions. Yes, sir. Well, let's go back and, and look at it. Probably it, it's... A number of these. I would certainly say that one of the things that it would follow under is a hater of God, because if it's prejudiced because of some, the color of somebody's skin or their race, then it's a failure to acknowledge the fact that they've been made in the image of God. And one of the things that we say in the baptismal creed is, will you respect the dignity of every human being? And a failure to acknowledge that person as equal in the sight of God well, that's the hate God, because you hate them. So it would certainly be under that. I, th- I certainly think that it, uh, malice would be there. Um, insolent, haughty, boastful, um, heartless, ruthless. I think all of those things. It's probably a whole host of things. But we need to understand when we say that is the worst sin, to realize what Paul is saying here, all of these things that he describes, as terrible as they are, are symptoms. Now, if somebody has been diagnosed with cancer, and one of the things they're dealing with is fatigue, or one of the things they're dealing with is nausea, the doctor can treat the symptoms. But if he doesn't deal with the disease, the patient is going to die just the same. All of these things that are described here are what? Symptoms. What's the cause? What's the root problem? A suppression of the truth. That's how this whole thing starts. The wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. That's the greatest sin. It is the sin of Eden. It is saying, God is not God. I'm in charge. 
God, you stay over there. That's your business. This is my business. You're not going to be here. And every other sin that you can think of, including the ones that people are even now in the process of inventing, are all the consequence of that one. So what God is interested in is not only dealing with the symptoms, but dealing with the disease. And once we deal with the disease, the symptoms will be corrected as a consequence. Yes? Sure, what, what is a culture but the story of individuals written in large, so yeah. It's a different answer for the individual. Yeah, I think for the individual, um, it really depends. Some people will never recognize they're at bottom. Their pride is such that they'll never admit that they're at bottom. For other people, they will recognize it. I remember uh, I knew a man, just to talk about alcoholism, for example, I knew a man who was um, drinking. Uh, he went off, um, went up to a bar, and um, apparently got drunk and he got in his car and he drove off and uh, he woke up about four hours later cell phone is ringing off the hook and he's parked the car and he didn't know how he got to where he got to just had he didn't know how he got there and he stopped cold turkey that day he, he realized I got a problem I've known other people who struggle with things like alcoholism and you tell them that they've got a problem, you have an intervention, and the first thing they do is they deny it. I don't have a problem. I've got this under control. I can handle it. So it really depends from individual to individual. The only thing you can do if you're dealing with somebody who's got that kind of a problem is to pray that they recognize that they're at bottom. That's the only thing you can do. You, you can't force them. Only the Holy Spirit can bring them to the realization that they've hit bottom. And sometimes that results in everything being stripped away. For us spiritually, the first thing we have to acknowledge is the fact that what Paul is saying is true about us. And as C.S. Lewis once said, to recognize that you cannot trust yourself even in your best moment. But in your worst moment, you need not despair for your sins are forgiven. So it's a constant struggle for all of us because the enemy's always out there trying to tell us that we're not as bad as we think we are when in fact Paul is telling us we're much worse than we think we are. But if you recognize that you really are that bad, then you recognize that Jesus is a wonderful Savior and you rejoice in His salvation. The need for a Savior. The need for a Savior. And if you don't see yourself as a bad person, you'll never recognize your need for Jesus Christ. If you think you're a good person, you'll never love Him. What if you're neutral? There is no neutrality in this. There is no neutrality. I'll close with these words from Jesus. I would rather you be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm... How many of you like hot tea? 
How many of you like iced tea? How many of you like lukewarm tea? There's no such thing as anything good that's lukewarm. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your mercy and for your grace. It is a hard lesson for us to wade through this first chapter of Romans. We know that there's good news coming, but we can't appreciate the good news until we've faced up to the bad news. So help us to see ourselves as we really are, not as we imagine ourselves to be. And even if we have difficulty seeing ourselves as we really are, we pray that you will grant us the grace, as painful as it may be, the insight to see ourselves as the sinners that we are, that we might see Jesus as the great Savior that he is. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.